Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on February 3rd, 2013. Today's message is titled, Everyday Courage, Defying the Rule of the Demon, by Pastor Isaac Whiting, based on Scripture, 2 Kings, Chapter 18, Verses 13 to 25. Let's pray. Father God, we are not special super people, superheroes of faith. We are just ordinary people. But we have a sincere desire to follow you, to know what your will is. Please increase our faith and lead us on toward you today. Please speak through your word. We ask this not from ourselves, but in Jesus' name. Amen. Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the great unsung heroes of faith in the Bible. His deeds of faith, his acts, are so astounding that at the very mention of his name, we should stand in awe of what he has done. And yet, many of us don't even know who he is. Hezekiah, who is that? Hezekiah is like the small kid in, on the playground who dares to say no to the school bully. And the school bully comes over and threatens him and pushes him onto the ground, and then everybody waits and watches to see what the boy will do. Hezekiah is like Rosa Parks, refusing to give up her seat on the bus. A small, insignificant act of defiance that changes the history of a nation. Hezekiah is like Neville Longbottom. At that darkest hour when Harry Potter was dead, the battle had been lost and there was no hope. And yet he says, I don't care. And he reaches into the hat and he pulls out the sword of Gryffindor. And he rushes in to fight a battle that's already lost. But even though Hezekiah is all of these things, this towering figure of faith, he was just an ordinary man. He was much more human even than some of the others we've talked about. Daniel, who was always awesome. But Hezekiah failed 
at the greatest moments uh, when he was about to triumph by faith, often his faith would fail him. The song that I sang earlier is from the story near the end of his life. Right after he had done all his magnificent works of faith, he got sick. He got sick and the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, Hezekiah, your sickness is going to result in death. You're not going to survive. And I think that in that moment, God simply was calling him home. He had finished the great works of his life. He didn't have anything left to do on the earth. Hezekiah loved the Lord and wanted to be with the Lord, and yet he didn't want to die. Hezekiah wanted to go to heaven, but just like us, he was a regular man, and he didn't want to die. In his story, the story of his life, one step at a time, Hezekiah turned to the Lord, he sought God, when he failed, he turned back to God after he failed, and slowly he came to the realization in his life that God was always there, just waiting for someone to turn and trust him. God was always there, just waiting for someone to turn and trust him. The story of Hezekiah really begins with his father, Ahaz. And the scene is the Middle East in the 8th century BC, a little bit over 2,700 years ago. And Ahaz gets a very bad rap in the Bible. Ahaz is known as an awful, terrible king, a godless heathen in many ways. But I think that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, again was just a normal man. And when he became king of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, he was in a very tricky situation. You'll remember from your history of Israel that the, the kingdom had split in two after the death of Solomon. And this is some 200 or 300 years later. And the northern kingdom of Israel is very large, and they still worship God, but they also worship other gods, like Baal and Ashtoreth. And they were fighting with the kingdom of Judah, which was smaller. And the king of Judah and all the people felt like, they felt like a lamb surrounded by a pack of ravenous wolves. To the south, they had Egypt, who was always looking to control them. To the north, their sister kingdom of Israel that was much larger than them and kept attacking them and wanting to take them over. And then to the east of Israel was Syria, another nation that, that always wanted to come down and take them over. And beyond that, even more darkness and scary armies. And Ahaz, as I said, was just an ordinary man. And he did what most ordinary people would do. He just did whatever seemed to make sense. But his problem was 
that he forgot the promises of God. The Bible says that the word of God is like a sword, like a sword that we can use to attack the enemy, to defend ourselves and those around us. And if the word of God is a sword, then Ahaz chose to leave his sword at home. He did not think it was powerful enough, and he looked to other weapons to save him. He looked around and he saw that the Lord hadn't done miracles in a long time. He looked at the other nations that were stronger than his nation, and he thought, it must be because their gods are stronger than my God. I don't want to abandon the faith of my fathers, but Ahaz said, I'm also going to worship these other gods that seem to be more powerful. And so little by little, Ahaz walked away from the Lord. He began to put up idols in Jerusalem. He began to to worship God on mountains and under trees, worship the gods of the nations around him, Baal, Ashtoreth. And then worst of all, he began to worship the god Molech. The god Molech was a powerful god of the Syrians, but the god Molech required the sacrifice of one's own children. And so, as Ahaz went further and further into this downward spiral, he even sacrificed two of his own sons to this pagan god. No doubt doing in his mind what made sense. If this god can really save our nation, isn't it better that we survive even if two of my sons have to die? It would be better that we live than die. But things continued to go poorly for Ahaz. And toward the end of his reign, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, they joined forces together and they came to attack him. And he knew that he had no hope of winning. And so, as his final crowning achievement, Ahaz made a deal with the devil. Ahaz called upon the most powerful demon god of all. He sent envoys. He sent messengers to the city of Nineveh. And he asked for help from the demon god Asur, the god of the Assyrians. He sent envoys to the greatest king at that point that the world had ever known. Tiglath-Pileser III, a king so dreaded that people in his day would not even speak his name, but simply called him the Assyrian. When Tiglath attacked a city, there were no survivors. You either surrendered to the Assyrians and became their slaves, or you resisted, and every city that resisted was slaughtered completely, entirely, man, woman, and child. Tortured, in fact, to death. If the ancient gods of the Near East had advertising slogans, Yahweh's slogan, the true God, the God of Israel, his slogan might be abounding in love and slow to anger. Asur's slogan 
would have been something like, submit to me entirely or I'll torture you to death. This is the contrast we have. And Ahaz sent his envoys with lots of gold and silver and things he had taken from the temple. He sent them to Tiglath-Pileser. He sent them to the Assyrians and he said, please come and help me. I am your servant. I will be your slave. The kingdom of, of Judah will serve you if you will help me. And Tiglath-Pileser said, of course, my friend, we will help you. The armies of Assyria swept down on, on Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and utterly destroyed them. Tiglath-Pileser and his successor, Shalmaneser, exiled all of the survivors to different parts of the world. And the kingdom of Judah became a vassal state, a servant, part of the Assyrian Empire. Every year they were required to give tribute. They were not forced to worship Asur actually in the temple, but they were forced to change the way that they worshipped into the Assyrian forms so that even the temple itself was altered to the will of the demon god. And this was the situation as Hezekiah became king. Hezekiah had no doubt watched all of this, but perhaps as he had watched his brothers sacrificed in a fire to Molech, he had decided that the sword of the Lord that his father had laid down might just be worth something after all. When Hezekiah became king, he started out with small steps. He didn't mean, I think, to change the whole world. He started out with small things that he knew he should do to serve the true God. He started out simply by cleaning out the temple, rebuilt the doors, got the priests back to work, said some prayers, little things like that. But as he went, the will of God became more and more clear to him. He made friends with an old man who was living in Jerusalem by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah began to speak the word of God to Hezekiah. Pretty soon Hezekiah realized that they had not been following the Bible for a long time and they needed to get back to it. And so he began banning the worship of other gods. He chopped down the idols that his father had put up. He removed the high places, the places on tops of hills where the Israelites would go to worship other gods, or sometimes the Lord, but in ways that the Lord had not asked them to worship. And as he did this and, and his influence grew, the entire nation of Judah was cleansed of its idols and worshipped only the Lord. But as he continued, Hezekiah came to a realization that must have been very difficult for him. He came to the realization that in order to serve the Lord fully, 
he must rebel against the king of Assyria. You have to understand that in this time, no one rebelled against the king of Assyria. For 200 years, the Assyrians had not lost. And they always killed everyone. There were never survivors in a city that they attacked. And so no one dared to rebel against them. Hezekiah came to this realization, and for a few years, he made preparations. He knew what God wanted him to do, but he was also a man of good sense. And he thought, if I have to do this impossible thing, at least I can make some plans. So he tried to get some allies together. He tried encouraging some other smaller cities to rebel against the Assyrians. One of these smaller cities even did rebel against the Assyrians and was utterly destroyed. That didn't bode too well for his plan. Finally, in the year 703 BC, the king of Assyria, Sargon II, died. And a new king came to the throne, a man named Sennacherib. And Hezekiah thought, perhaps this is my chance. He had heard that the new king was possibly more into building gigantic palaces than he was into war. Maybe God is opening a door for me, for me to rebel. And so Hezekiah entered into rebellion. I want to read you a quote from a historian of the ancient Middle East, not a Christian, about this act of Hezekiah. He says, Knowing the fate of Arphad, of Israel, of Damascus, and of Ashdod, it is hard to imagine the amount of faith Hezekiah must have had to finally pull the trigger on this fateful decision. But whatever it took, he apparently had it in spades. Tribute ceased to flow, and the kingdom of Judah formally entered into a state of rebellion against the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Hezekiah entered into rebellion, and his nation and the entire Middle East held its breath. No one had done this in a long time, certainly not a little dinky backwater state like the nation of Judah to defy the will of the god Asur. And a year passed, and the Assyrians didn't come. And the other nation states around Judah began to be inspired. If if Judah, if Hezekiah can defy the will of Sennacherib, well, so can I. And so Tyre and Sidon rebelled. Syria rebelled. And in fact, the whole region was inflamed into rebellion against the Assyrians. And so now the Assyrians had to act. And Sennacherib came 
with a massive army. We don't know how many, but we know it numbered in the hundreds of thousands. (laughs) The people of Judah fled into Jerusalem from the countryside. And even packed to the limits, the city of Judah, or the city of Jerusalem, could only hold 25,000 people. The king of Assyria came with an army numbering in the hundreds of thousands. <laughs> and everywhere he went, he killed everyone. All the other nation states that had rebelled who were to the north of, of Judah, he had to go through them to get to Hezekiah, and he did. And he killed everyone in the cities that he destroyed. Forty-six cities were destroyed before he got to Jerusalem. Not one could resist. The people of the countryside he sent into exile. Before he got to Jerusalem, he had sent into exile 200,000 people from the countryside. He had attacked the city of Lachish, the second most heavily defended city in Judah and he had defeated it with ease. He killed everyone in Lachish. And at this point, Hezekiah loses his nerve. Can you believe it? After all this, he loses his nerve. He says that we have no hope. How could God, the Lord, defeat this army? And he pulls all the gold out of the temple, everything he has, and he sends it to Sennacherib, and he says, please forgive me. I'm your servant. What happens next is a little bit hard to pin down. The Bible doesn't really tell us what happens. It skips over a part. But Sennacherib recorded that he actually broke off the invasion, a very strange thing for the Assyrians to do. But whatever happened, Hezekiah, after he failed in his faith, changed his mind again. Perhaps Isaiah came to him and encouraged him and told him, no, you can do this. Whatever it was, after he failed at this pivotal moment, Sennacherib had started to leave, Hezekiah rebelled again. He re-entered rebellion. Sennacherib couldn't believe it. This guy must be out of his mind. Sennacherib sent his most powerful forces to Jerusalem. He sent his Rab Shekah, which was his highest military official. And they stood outside the wall of Jerusalem and hurled insults at Hezekiah and at the Lord. Who do you think you are? These are the verses we read earlier. How could you possibly imagine that Yahweh could stand against the might of Assyria? You must be out of your mind. And Hezekiah remained quiet. And I think it's a tribute to his leadership that all the people of the city made no response to the Assyrians. Even though they'd seen their king fail, they still followed him even if it meant certain death by torture. After 
the night had come. And they brought the words written in the letter that the Assyrians had said, insulting the God of Israel. They brought these to Hezekiah. And in another very human display of emotion, Hezekiah enters the temple and he falls on his knees and he cries to God. And he says, God, I don't know what to do. I can't possibly defeat these Assyrians. They're bigger than anything I've ever seen. No one can defeat them. They are right. They've destroyed every other god that they've come across. But their gods were not real. He says to the Lord, I know that you are the God that's actually alive. You're the only one. Would you please help us? And would you please show us and show the world that you're real? Hezekiah had never seen a miracle. And this is his prayer. And the Bible says, in one sentence, that that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death in the Assyrian camp 185,000 men. The Assyrians woke up the next morning and most of their army was laying dead in their beds. Sennacherib fled. He fled back to Nineveh. And Judah would never again be attacked by the Assyrians. A few years later, Sennacherib was murdered by his own children. He must have been a great guy. He was murdered by his own children, and within 50 years, the entire nation of Assyria was destroyed. At this point, I want to emphasize to you that this story is actually true. I have a couple of slides to show you. This story of Hezekiah is one of the places in Scripture where the stories of the Bible and all of the other evidence we have, written records from the Middle East, records from the Greeks, archaeological evidence, where they come together. One of those places where we can look and say, wow, the Bible is actually true. Let me have the first slide, please. What you're looking at here is called the Taylor Prism, or the Prism of Sennacherib. There are three in existence, and this one happens to be in the British Museum. Has anyone ever seen this prism? Maybe you didn't notice it when you were there. The British Museum is rather large. It is a record of this particular campaign written by the Assyrians, written by Sennacherib's court, and sent out after the campaign to all the different parts of his empire to tell them just how awesome he is and how powerful his God is and that they should never rebel again. It details many of the things that he did to these cities, uh, the people that he killed and that he sent into exile. Of course, it doesn't say 
that 185,000 soldiers died in his army. But it is remarkable because it does not say that he defeated Hezekiah. It is the only instance in all of Sennacherib's reign when he lists on a prism like this, a piece of propaganda, he lists all the things he did to terrify Hezekiah and all the tribute he got from Hezekiah, but he does not say that he defeated the city. Little Jerusalem standing alone against the king of the world. Can I have the next slide, please? This is a picture of the Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote in the 5th century BC, a couple of hundred years after this campaign and these events happened. And Herodotus tells an interesting story because it is so similar to the biblical account. Herodotus tells us that when Sennacherib had been on the verge of defeating everyone, on the verge of defeating Jerusalem and even invading Egypt, that his army was struck by a plague, some kind of disease, and that hundreds of thousands in his army had died. Herodotus attributes this great victory to the Egyptian gods. But he is telling us that this story is really true. What we read in this part of the Bible actually happened. 185,000 men in Sennacherib's camp died in a single day. That's all for the slides. Hezekiah was just a man, just a human being like us. And he failed over and over, even at crucial moments his faith failed him. But he continued, when he failed, to turn back to God. And as he did, he discovered that God was still there, just waiting for someone to turn and trust him. God was still there. Maybe we have played it safe in our lives. Maybe some of us have not always really wanted to hear what God wants us to do. Maybe we haven't always really sought God because we're afraid of what he might tell us to do or what he might lead us into. Should we be people who just do whatever makes sense? Or should we be people who seek the Lord first? These things aren't always different what makes sense, and what God wants. But they are a different way of looking at the world. When I have a problem, or even when I don't have a problem, just in my daily, regular life, do I look to God first, and then knowing what God wants me to do, try and figure out the best way to do it, trusting him? Or do I just go with the flow, 
and do whatever seems to make sense. Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was a man who just did whatever made sense. If you had lived in his day, you wouldn't think he was this evil monster. He was just doing what everybody knew was logical. Hezekiah was a man who sought God first. Sometimes that resulted in him doing things that made no sense, that seemed insane to the people around him. But Hezekiah, Hezekiah is the man of faith, the man who we should all aspire to be like. As he sought God first, he discovered that God was still there, even though everyone else had forgotten, just waiting for someone to turn and trust him. Let's pray.